Good morning. What a beautiful day it is outside and wonderful to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor John, for the wonderful introduction. It is truly an honor to be here with you. Let me say quickly, we love this church. Anytime we are away from this church, it's kind of weird, it always feels like we're away from home. This is our home church, but it seems like we're always somewhere else. But wherever we are, we always tell people this is our church. This is our covenant family. So uh, we are thankful to be here. Thank you, Pastor John and Jonathan, for opening up your pulpit this morning. If you'll take your Bible, turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 42 through 47. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on the reading, hearing, and preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, we love You. And we recognize, Lord, at the very beginning that we can often have dull hearing. Father, we can also have dull thinking, and Father, we need you to illuminate our minds. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be here with us this morning, that he would illuminate our minds, that he would convict, that he would rebuke, that he would exhort and encourage and challenge the body of Christ. Bless the reading of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The house that Ruth built. The house that Ruth built. Some of you baseball players, baseball fans may be familiar with that term. That was a phrase that was coined back in 1923 after the very first game was ever played in Yankee Stadium. And none other than the great legend Babe Ruth himself climbs up to the plate and he knocks the ball clear into the stands, securing a 4-1 to victory over the Boston Red Sox. And from that day on, the newspapers were filled with that phrase, the house that Ruth built. And that phrase has become synonymous with Yankee Stadium and the organization itself, even to this very day. Now, it's an interesting phrase because... It's a bit misleading, at least at the word level, because at the word level, it implies that Babe Ruth literally built Yankee Stadium and that he built the Yankee organization. Well, we know that that's not exactly the case. 
Babe Ruth was not out operating heavy machinery and painting bathrooms. We're assuming that that was not the case. Nor was Babe Ruth going into the owner's office and demanding that tra- uh, players be traded and that uh, he's firing staff at will. He's not doing that either. Now, even though he's an incredible athlete, he was still a player operating within a system. He did not have the authority to make those kinds of decisions. Because, see, that's the issue we're talking about. The issue is over who is building the house. At no point could Babe Ruth walk in there and say, Guys, uh, I want to talk to the architect. We're going to change the entire design of this stadium to meet my specifications. He couldn't do that because he didn't have the authority to do that. So the issue is over who is building the house and who has authority over the house. And ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly the same problem that we're facing in many of our churches today. There is a confusion over who is building the church and who has authority over the church. There's a confusion over the fact that we think that just because we can draw large crowds through the doors, much like Babe Ruth did at that stadium, there's a thinking that says because we can do that, then that gives us the right and the authority to do anything we want with the church. People like this have assumed ownership over the church and they're using the church to indulge their own sinful appetites. And the crazy thing is, if we were to walk up to some of these people and ask them, why are they treating the church like this? Most of them would say they think they're doing this for Christ. And this kind of thinking is the fruit that has come out of what is known uh, today as the church growth movement. The church growth movement. Let me tell you a little bit about that that movement very quickly. That movement really kicked off in the mid-1950s. And it originally started with a great intention. The intention was, we want our churches to grow. They believed that it was the plan and the will of God for God's church to numerically grow and expand. Not necessarily a bad idea, but the problem was with the misapplication of the principles They started asking the question, why is it that this particular church grows in this situation, but it doesn't grow in this situation? The principle is good, but the misapplication of the principles are bad. The movement really got filed up when it came westward. The church began to be run like a business, using some sort of a pragmatic evangelistic outreach approach that was focused on making the church attractive to the sinner. As one pastor said out of this movement, and I quote, we simply went out into the community and started asking people, what do you want out of church? And we gave it to them. Folks, that's pragmatism. Pragmatism says the means justifies, or the end justifies the means. Therefore, if our goal is to simply get people to come into our church, then we can use any means necessary to do that. And it's okay, and it's justified. So we essentially are to ask, we started asking people, what do they want? What do you want out of church? What do you not like about church? Do you not like pastors that operate as shepherds and overseers of your soul? You don't want them getting into your business? That's okay. Well, we'll make the pastors glorified guidance counselors and leadership experts. That's what we'll call them. You don't like long sermons? I'll well, tell you what, we'll just cut out services altogether. 
We'll cut down to one service a week and have maybe one 20-minute message at that. You don't want to talk about doctrine. Doctrine divides. Theology is too lofty for the common person. You don't want to do any of that. So we'll just have messages that are self-help moralistic messages. Messages that are centered around making people feel good. You don't like hymns? It's okay. We'll chunk those. We'll, we'll, we'll get a stage and we'll have beautiful worship singers and with beautiful smiles and color-coordinated outfits. They'll do the singing for you so you don't have to. You don't like reverent worship? That's boring. That's old-fashioned. Yeah, a rock concert, that helps. We'll get smoking lights and laser beams. That always fixes the problem. You don't like pews? Those are old. Those are uncomfortable. Nobody likes sitting in those. So we'll get floppy chairs and put flat screen TVs in there. And that way it really looks like a good show is about to start. You don't want anybody getting into your personal business. You just want to kind of come into church and slip out with nobody getting into your life. Well, we'll put you in a superficial small group that's centered around felt needs with a watered-down devotional book by a half-hearted evangelical. You want a church that's got a lot of programs and organizations and lots of stuff for the family? We'll give you that. One church, of a, one pastor of a mega church, in his introductory video on their website, after he told everything that their church has to offer, he finished the video by saying, come visit us, we have something for the whole family. And you can walk into churches all over America today, and that is exactly the kind of activity that you'll see. Man has turned the church into an enterprise in order to feed his own desires. And in their efforts to win the lost, if that's what we want to call that, They've built up the church to be a church of unregenerate people because they have failed to understand that if you use carnal means to draw carnal men, you will have to use carnal means to keep carnal men. I believe that this message is timely for Covenant Presbyterian Church. This church has experienced incredible numerical and spiritual growth over the last several years. You know that. You're here. You've watched it. The name Covenant EPC is becoming in this community a a name that means a thriving church with a huge missional outreach and its active members. We had a great weekend this past weekend, didn't we, here? Those of you that were involved. Wonderful weekend. You know, I told Pastor John a couple days ago, I said, if you were to ask some of the members in this church that were here 15, 20 years ago, if they would have been able to imagine that Covenant Church would be worshiping in a new sanctuary, have a thriving congregation, and be hosting presbytery, some of them would have thought you were crazy. Some of you, that was you. You you would not have thought that 10 years ago or 15 years ago in that short amount of time. It's an amazing thing. But it is the proof that God is moving in His church. And furthermore, it is the truth that Christ is building His church. Christ is building His church. And this is precisely the promise that Jesus gave in Matthew 16, verse 18. You remember that? Jesus looked at the the disciples and He said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You remember that? That's a wonderful promise. That's a guarantee that Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. But there's an unsaid stipulation there. 
the unsaid stipulation of that is that the gates of hell will not prevail against that church as long as that church is being built according to his plan. As long as that church is being built according to his way and his method. Why? Because it's his church. It's his bride. He purchased that church. He's the head of that church. And the warning in that verse is that the churches that cease to do that, that fail to operate according to Christ's plan, the warning is that they may cease to be a church. Read in Revelation chapter 3 of the church of Sardis. Church full of works, full of external religiosity, full of all kinds of activity, but they were unregenerate and unrepentful. They were a dying church. And the warning was, repent and turn to the Lord unless the Lord come swiftly with destruction and judgment on that church. You can look all throughout church history and we can find churches that are no longer churches because they have strayed away from the plan of Jesus Christ. And as good and as healthy as covenant is right now, let's ask a question. Where will covenant be in five years? Where will it be in 10 years, 15 years? Will it continue on the path that it's on, thriving, preaching the word of God? Will it continue in the plan of Christ? Or will it become corrupted and full of carnality? Covenant is healthy because it has been built according to Christ's plan. And what is that plan? I think it's beneficial for us to remind ourselves what that plan is going forward as a church. The promise of Matthew 16 is that Christ will build his church, and we find out exactly what that looks like right here in our passage in Acts chapter 2, particularly verse 42. If you'll look at verse 42, we find that when Jesus builds his church, it will be a teaching church it will be a fellowshipping church, and it will be a worshiping church. We're going to discuss those three very quickly. Number one, when Jesus builds his church, it will be a teaching church. Notice that it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. No one's having to force their arm here. 3,000 souls have been added to the church on the day of Pentecost, and they have immediately become disciples. They are learners. This is what they want to do. This is who they are. They can't help but learn. They're hungry for the word. This is all they want to do. They are begging the apostles to feed them the word of God. They are intent on being instructed by them. And they have no concept whatsoever of skipping out for travel baseball or any other activity. When they're there unfolding the word, they are receiving it. They're hungry for the word. Because they understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They need this, and they know it. Secondly, let's notice the apostles' teaching. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Not their favorite YouTube preacher. This is a local authority that they've submitted themselves to. The apostles' teaching. 
We see all throughout the New Testament regularly uh, t- uh, commands telling us to be about the business of preaching and teaching the word. Paul says this numerous times all throughout, exhorting church leaders to be about the business of preaching and teaching the word of God. After having charged Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 Timothy 2 to preach the word, he tells him in chapter 4, verse 11, to prescribe and teach these things. And he follows that up in verse 13 by saying, Until I come, give yourself, give your attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to the teaching. Titus chapter 1, Paul reminds Titus, who's been left in the city of Crete, to appoint elders. He reminds Titus that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. That's one of the qualifications for an elder, to be about the business of teaching and preaching the word of God. The New Testament church was a teaching church. Listen, do not buy the lie of our culture that says no creeds but Christ. That's a lie. And you'll never find that idea in the Bible. The church is a place where the word of God is both explained and proclaimed for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And let me tell you, by the way, you've got two of the best in town right here. I assure you of that. Number two, they will be a fellowshipping church, a fellowshipping church. Notice that they have a desire for community. This is the natural consequence of being born again. You get saved, you want to be around like-minded people. You get saved, you want to go fellowship with people who think and act and operate just like you. They want to be in fellowship with God's people. Now, this is way more than uh, superficial, shallow greetings. How you doing? Good morning. Good to see you. This is intimate life. This is a deep, close-knit relationship. This refers to common life that they share together, where they, each person is giving and ta- uh, receiving. They're sharing all things, having all things in common, meeting each other's needs, being of one mind, one heart, one accord. They are in partnership together. They are in agreement together. This is precisely what Jesus said would happen. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that when a person is born again, they are baptized into the body of Christ. They're not baptized into isolation because the Christian life is never meant to be lived in isolation. It's built for community. That's why we're told in Hebrews 10, 24, how to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, encouraging one another all the more until the day draws near. You can't make it on your own because you were never designed to make it on your own. The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion prying around, seeking whom he may devour. And if you know shepherding language, if you find a straying lamb, they're in danger. Staying close to the flock, listen, despite all of her flaws. See, it's easy to stay away and say, gosh, a bunch of hypocrites, and then I have to get in there and actually start loving on people and building relationships and inviting them into my home. Oh, my gosh, who would think that? Inviting someone into my home for a meal? That's tough. But that's New Testament life. That's not superficial life. That's New Testament, new creation 
life. That's the fellowship that this church had, and it's what we need. Thirdly, they were a worshiping church. They were a worshiping church. One of the hallmark characteristics of Jesus building his church is that it will be a worshiping church. Jesus said in John 4.23 when he's talking to the woman at the well, you remember that? He says, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? In truth. The true worshipers of God are all those people who have been truly regenerated and born again. They are the worshipers who worship God not based on on a location or a building or a feeling, but they worship God through the Son from the heart. All of their worship proceeds from a heart of gratitude and praise and expression to God. That's what that means to worship in spirit, to worship with the proper heart attitude, exalting God. All of their worship was done in truth. It was consistent with what had been revealed in Scripture, and it was centered on Jesus Christ. That's what we come to know in Reformed world as the regulative principle of worship, which basically says we don't get to decide how we worship God. We don't get to invent ways to worship Him. We do it according to what has been prescribed in Scripture. Now, there are primarily two ways here that were shown how they worshiped God. Number one, they, did, they practiced the Lord's Supper. And number two, they were united together in prayer or the prayers. First of all, the Lord's Supper. The early community regularly and jointly participated in the Lord's Supper together. They were following the example that Christ had given them on the night of Passover. It was a perpetual reminder to the believers that they had fellowship with God and with one another. The communion elements all pointed to the physical incarnation of Christ, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his return. There's nothing magical about the elements of the Lord's Supper. We believe that they become effective through the Holy Spirit as you take them and as the Holy Spirit ministers to your heart. You can eat crackers and and juice all day long with a sinful heart and it's not doing anything. But as the Holy Spirit is communicating that to you, it's a wonderful benefit to you. That is exactly why you need it. We believe that God's grace is most usually communicated through the word and through the sacraments. That is why those two things are so important. You show me a believer that regularly misses out on Sunday morning, missing the teaching and preaching of God's word, and regularly is not partaking of the Lord's Supper, and I'll show you a believer that's struggling. Those are benefits to you, and that is what the New Testament church were continually giving themselves to. Secondly, they were a praying community. The early community regularly enjoyed times of mutual prayer, They had a deep love of prayer and an appreciation for prayer, especially the prayers, the corporate prayers of the church. Now, this is individual prayer, but it's also corporate prayer as well. And this is what we see all throughout the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. He says a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks 
in all circumstances. That, mean, that, that to pray without ceasing, that just means to pray persistently and regularly. Make it a part of your life. One commentator spoke on this verse. I love this. He said, the early community, they were a united force in prayer together, pulling down mercies upon themselves and others, and they were doing violence under the kingdom of heaven. I love that. They were a praying people. Because they understood that prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. And it's the lifeblood of the church. Charles Spurgeon was known to be an incredible man of fervent prayer. So much so that his own personal prayer life radically changed the spiritual dynamic of that church. So that in later years when he was asked, Mr. Spurgeon, what is the secret to your success? He simply replied, my people pray for me. You see, he had changed their understanding of the power of prayer in his own life. They were a praying church. John Piper says, if you're not praying, you're dying. It is the lifeblood of the church. And this is both private prayers and family prayers and corporate prayers. Let me ask you a question, just a side note. Fathers, are you praying with your children? They will learn how to pray by watching you. They will imitate your prayers. They will follow your example. Are you teaching your children to pray? Are you teaching them the value of it, the power of it, the need for it? It'll change your home. It'll change church. The promise of God is that when Christ builds the church, it will be a teaching church, a fellowshipping church, and it'll be a worshiping church church now as we get ready to close the promise of matthew 16 18 is that the gates of hell will not prevail against that church but it is contingent on whether or not that church is built according to his plan whether or not it's built according to his way and in acts 2 42 we're shown what that looks like let me tell you a quick story and then we'll pray I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning you wake up and you decide that you're going to go talk to the President of the United States and you're going to convince him that you think that you are more qualified to run the country. Now, totally get rid of the President. Pick any President you want. Your favorite President all throughout history, doesn't matter what political party, who it is. Your favorite President. And imagine that that's the President and you're going to go and talk to that President and you're going to convince him that you are more qualified to run the country. And so you go to the White House and you say, Mr. President, here's why I think I am more qualified to do this. I watch a lot of Fox News and CNN. I've read a lot of books. I'm, I'm very outspoken on social media when it comes to politics. People hear me and they like my comments. And uh, I have a little breakfast that meets at the local diner on Thursday mornings, and they think I'm really good. And uh, I, I think it would be the best benefit for this country if, if I become the president and, and, I, and I do this. Now, if we're all honest, most of us would say we are not qualified for that position. We don't have the education. We don't have the connections. We don't have the skills to carry that kind of weight and burden and that responsibility. I certainly don't want that. Okay, But the thing is, 
even though we have the best intentions for the country, and we would love the country, we would really love the country, and even though we would think that our ideas are really good, they still wouldn't be good enough. I want you to apply that to the church. Okay, it's a terrible example, but just hang with me. I'll just apply that to the church for a second. And let's remember who we're talking to when we're talking about the church. You love the church. I have no doubt about it. I love the church. But I assure you, Jesus' love for the church is way better than anything you could ever imagine. And you may have great plans, and I may have great ideas of how I think this church should be run. And, And some of them may be pretty good. But I assure you, his plan is way better, way better than mine. Let me encourage you with this. When the church is built according to his plan, you know what the great thing about it is? Your spiritual life and your spiritual experience will surpass everything that you can imagine. You will have more joy, more peace, and more satisfaction in your walk with Christ when the church is being built his way, not our way. And furthermore, the church will be absolutely beautiful. It will be glorious. And it will be a church that hungry souls will want to be a part of. That's a church. That's the church that Jesus is building. That's the church that I want to be a part of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to ask your forgiveness, Lord. Lord, for trying to, too often trying to do our own thing. This is your church. Father, we want to do this the way that you have prescribed to us in Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that that church that you're building, it will be a wonderful benefit to us. To to us, our personal spiritual lives, as well as all around the world, that church will grow and that church will thrive and it will shine forth the beauties and the excellencies of Jesus Christ. It'll be a church that is centered upon the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Father, we want to be that church. We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you guard us and may you lead us in that path. In Jesus' name, amen. As a response to the preaching of the gospel, let's stand and confess our faith together. We believe in Jesus Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.